Welcome to the 1909, your home at the State News for everything happening on campus and around Lansing. I'm Lily Gwinney. It is officially spring. This is our first 1909 of the month of April, so I'd be remiss if I did not mention the huge storm we all weathered in Lansing last week. If you want to see some photos and videos of the crazy flooding that happened on campus, head to the State News website and check it out. So this week we'll be recapping the reopenings of buildings on campus, disabled students' experiences during the February shooting, and a review of MSU's investment connections to the gun industry. We'll also look at some quick city, campus, and state government news. Then we will hear from one of our administration reporters, Alex Walters, to help unpack the highly anticipated results of the third-party report commissioned by the university after the controversial firing of former Broad College of Business Dean Sanjay Gupta. So let's get into it. The MSU Union welcomed the community of students and staff back into the building at 8 a.m. on April 3rd. Counselors from Counseling and Psychiatric Services, faculty, priests, and student employees delivered speeches during the reopening ceremony. The first floor lounges, computer labs, and Sparties are now open. On the third floor, there is a reflection room for any community member to visit where thousands of messages from schools and communities across the country show their support and love for MSU following the tragic events of February 13th. Chief Communications Officer for Student Life and Engagement, Kat Cooper, said the union was built to honor students and with the difficulty of reopening being present, it's needed for the community. The very foundation of this building is our students, Cooper said. With graduation approaching and summer programming approaching, it was important to the team and the staff to be here if students are ready to be here. If we're ready, we are here for them. On the night of the February 13th shooting, social sciences sophomore Amber Olguen, a student with a mobility impairment, got up to move her dresser in front of the door but realized she wasn't able to. In that moment it hit me, I'd be screwed because I couldn't move our furniture to barricade the door, Olguen said. And then the students in Berkey who were going out the window, would that even have been a possibility for me? Where would that have left me? Emergency guidelines posted inside classrooms at MSU give guidance under five emergency categories active shooter situations, secure in place orders, evacuations, seeking shelter, and hazardous material leaks or spills. Only the evacuation section gives specific instruction for students with disabilities. The evacuation guidelines offered for persons with disabilities are to assist to the nearest safe stairway, inform the nearest police or fire personnel of a person's location for assistance, to not use elevators, and that deaf and hearing impaired individuals may not realize the evacuation alarm is sounding and may require alerting and guidance to the exit and rally site. But according to environmental science and management senior Madeline Toko, a student with a neuro disability, the somebody who is going to come and help a disabled person is nobody. Plain and simple, Toko said. Toko and Olguin both serve as representatives for the ASMSU Council of Students with Disabilities. They're, quote, unimpressed with the guidelines offered for disabled students. Some disabled students are not able to run, hide, or in the worst case scenario, fight someone off, but there are no distinctions in the protocol for disabled students during an active shooter situation or other emergencies. Toko said this oversight and protocol leaves disabled students as an afterthought and relies on surrounding people to help, which is unreliable. The reality is, is that able-bodied students will usually help themselves before they even think to help disabled peers who will have extra difficulties because they'd rather save themselves, Toko said. Not all disabilities are visible. Students with mobility, hearing, or vision impairment that don't use visible aids are left at a further disadvantage, Olguin said. It puts the onus on the disabled student in that case to draw attention to that, Olguin said, pointing out that you need accommodations in a setting where no one cared to ask in the first place, especially in an emergency situation where everyone is panicking, is going to be a difficult situation. Active threat training will become mandatory for students in the fall of 2023, 
Additionally, active threat training was optional and provided upon request by the university. MSU Department of Police and Public Safety spokesperson Dana White said the department never received requests from any specific groups, including disabled student groups, for this training. However, White said they will recognize that there is room for improvement moving forward, and MSU will strive to include all perspectives in the mandatory trainings. In the meantime, training will still be provided upon request, and MSU PD is open to make plans with anyone who feels it's necessary. We would recommend that disabled students know their own physical capabilities and know how to best physically defend themselves in that situation and make that plan in place beforehand by contacting our department, White told the state news. Ogwen said not only should the university implement mandatory all-inclusive shooter training, but they should also maintain consistent contact with groups on campus that represent disabled students. Additionally, Toko said the university needs to have accessibility in mind from start to finish with any plan or project they're doing to not leave disabled students as an afterthought. If you're disabled, you can't hop through windows like everybody else. You can't do what you need to do to survive like everybody else, whether in normal life or in an emergency sometimes, Toko said. So we've got to make this better. That's all there is to it. In other campus news, two finalists for the vice president of the Office of Civil Rights and Title IX coordinator role will visit campus on April 10th, which is the day this podcast airs, so today. (laughs) Community members will have the opportunity to ask questions and provide, provide feedback later in the week. The position is an elevation from the former position of assistant vice president for the Office of Civil Rights and Title IX Education and Compliance. MSU Deputy Spokesperson Dan Olson said the role was implemented to reflect the importance of the position. We made the determination, given the significance of this role and the important role that plays within our Title IX office and the Office for Civil Rights, that it needed to be elevated from an assistant vice president to a vice president role, Olson said. President Emeritus Samuel L. Stanley Jr. created an eight-member search committee with an executive search firm, Isaacson Miller, to conduct a national search for the position last fall. When the finalists visit campus, they will meet with stakeholders and deliver a public presentation, which will be live-streamed, according to an email from Interim President Teresa Woodruff. And question and answer session will... I choked on that. A question and answer session will follow the presentations. Community members will be able to provide feedback on the first finalist on April 11th from 10 to 11 a.m. and the second finalist on April 14th from 8.15 to 9.15 a.m., Both feedback sessions will be held in room 443 of the Hannah Administration Building as well as over Zoom. Two individuals were pronounced dead at the scene of a multi-car accident on April 5th near the Lake Lansing and Coolidge intersection, according to the East Lansing Police Department. Six other individuals were transported to a local hospital, two in critical condition and four in stable condition at the time we recorded this episode on April 6th. The investigation surrounding the crash is ongoing. Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed a series of bills on April 5th repealing Michigan's 1931 ban on abortions, crossing off another key promise by Michigan Democrats from the 2022 campaign trail. In a press statement, Whitmer said the repeal of the ban makes Michigan a leader in the fight for reproductive freedom. In November, Michiganders sent a clear message, we deserve to make our own decisions about our own bodies, Whitmer said. Today, we are coming together to repeal the extreme 1931 law banning abortion without exceptions for rape, incest, rape or incest, and criminalizing nurses and doctors for doing their jobs. The bills to repeal were among the first introduced under the Democrats' legislative trifecta in January. Upon the ban's repeal, Michigan becomes one of 11 states to codify abortion rights in the months following Dobbs v. Jackson decision by the U.S. Supreme Court that removed protections provided by Roe v. Wade for abortion at the national level. 
The signing of the repeal follows the passage of Proposal 3 last November when voters overwhelmingly approved the constitutional amendment which enshrines rights around reproduction, including the right to an abortion, into Michigan's constitution. Whitmer is joined at the signing event in Birmingham by the sponsors of the bills and representatives from various abortion rights groups, including Planned Parenthood and EMILY's List. Since the mass shooting on the MSU campus in February, students have demanded that Michigan lawmakers enact stricter gun control. To continue this fight, some students are now turning their attention to the university itself. Students Demand Action MSU is leading this conversation. In January, its nationwide parent organization called on colleges and universities to divest from the gun industry. The gun industry rakes in $9 billion each year, while our communities pay the price with our lives, the organization wrote on social media. Our colleges and universities shouldn't support that. Now, MSU's investments are under scrutiny, including the university's $205.4 million of investments in BlackRock funds. According to MSU Deputy Spokesperson Dan Olson, MSU has invested in five BlackRock funds, BlackRock Systematic China Absolute Return Fund, BlackRock BlackRock Strategic Fund, BlackRock Obsidian Fund, BlackRock Emerging Companies, and BlackRock Multi-Alternative Opportunities. BlackRock... This is tripping me up. BlackRock Incorporated is the largest asset manager in the world and manages thousands of funds. BlackRock Fund Advisors has stakes in leading firearm manufacturers, approximately 16% in Sturm Ruger and Company Incorporated, 7% in Smith & Wesson Brands Incorporated, and 15% in Vista Outdoor Incorporated. BlackRock has faced criticism in the past for investments in firearms industries. After a mass shooting killed 17 people at Marjory Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida, BlackRock released a statement that said responsible policies were critical for manufacturers and retailers of civilian firearms. BlackRock wrote that it was engaging in discussions with civilian firearm manufacturers and that it did not have any say in where its investments in the index funds went. Despite this, BlackRock holds over $452.6 million worth of shares in these three companies, two of which are among the largest gun manufacturers in the U.S. However, MSU funds do not contribute to these shares, as Olson said that the BlackRock funds in which MSU invests do not own any part of gun manufacturing companies. Claims that MSU invests in gun manufacturers through its investments with these BlackRock funds are inaccurate, Olson said in an email. Furthermore, we have no direct investments with gun manufacturers, and we don't have direct or indirect investments in the three publicly traded civilian firearms manufacturers. For students demand action, MSU, this isn't enough. Comparative Cultures and Politics junior Sailor Reinders, the organization's president, said the university should not support the gun industry in any way. Guns are the leading cause of death for children and young people today, so it's very important that we are not supporting that in any way, Reinders said. And so I think it would be wise for MSU to consider removing BlackRock's investments. Though the organization has not yet taken action, Reinders said that the group is currently conducting research and will likely form a campaign once it's done further planning. The campaign will likely call on the university to create a cause or pledge not to invest in the gun industry in the future. Reclaim MSU, a group advocating for university transparency, also told the state news that it would like to see MSU publicly commit to not make any direct or indirect investments in the firearms industry in the future. Rangers said Students Demand Action MSU has been considering calling on the university to make this commitment for quite some time. However, after three students died and thousands of others were traumatized on February 13th, the issue became more pertinent and time-sensitive. A group of MSU faculty has begun circulating a petition demanding an end to the University Athletics Department's controversial $9 million partnership with Caesars Sportsbook. 
has come shortly after new rules from the American Gambling Industry's internal regulatory group, which threatened the deal. The petition was first posted around 10.15 a.m. on Tuesday, April 4th. By 4.30, it had 154 signatures. The vast majority of those signatures came from current and former faculty, with the rest coming mostly from current students and parents. Community sustainability professor John Kerr, who, re- who led the petition, said that they were inspired to act by the mental health issues they worked to accommodate following the mass shooting on MSU's campus. He said that while he and his colleagues were working to help struggling students, he saw the deal as, quote, doing the opposite by sponsoring online gambling, which can be addictive and unhealthy for developing brains. With our partnership with Caesars, this is who MSU is, selling out for profit at the expense of our students' well-being, the petition says. Kerr shared it with colleagues, including MSU's Director of Global Ideas, Alan Hruska, who further shared it with administrators, including Interim Provost Thomas Jitsko. In Jitsko's emailed response to the petition, he said the petition's aim is exactly what is being worked on now by the president, as she indicated in her remarks to the Faculty Senate. Interim President Teresa Woodruff's remarks occurred at a January Faculty Senate meeting where she questioned the Caesars partnership and said she would be ordering her staff to look into the matter. The deal with Caesars was not negotiated by Woodruff, and it is overseen by the MSU to us. The deal with Caesars was not negotiated by Woodruff. It's overseen by the MSU Athletics Department, specifically Athletic Director Alan Haller. The deal includes broadcast and video advertisements for Caesars during games, emails to MSU's database of students, free tickets to games, and seats on teams' private planes for Caesars employees, as well as the non-specific clause which allows the company to Caesarize the tailgating spaces outside of Spartan Stadium. Beyond that, the specifics of the deal are unclear, as a sports marketing firm acts as a middleman between MSU and Caesars to ensure the contract is not subject to public records requests. So that is it for our news roundup today. Now I'd like to welcome back to the 1909 administration reporter, Alex Walters. Hi, Alex. Hi, thank you for having me. I feel underdressed if we have the video and everything. <laughs> hey, whole thing. first time for both of us. That's cool. So um, we're, we're here today to talk about the Quinn Emanuel Report. And uh, I'll before, before getting into any of that, let's just start with an overview of how this all came to be. Tell us you know, why the university commissioned this report and what they were hoping to learn from it. Yeah, well, um, it's a long one. So it starts uh, almost a year ago now. uh, At the end of the year, uh, the Broad College, MSU's business school for MBA students, they have sort of an end-of-the-year party, uh, an open bar, and at that party, one of the professors, uh, he becomes intoxicated, uh, and a finalized OEI report, which we've obtained, shows that he was uh, non-consensually touching students, harassing students um, throughout the night. And so uh, Sanjay Gupta, who was dean at the business school at the time, was kind of at the center of all this. He wasn't at the party. He was out of town. And in the days that followed, he would get calls from two administrators who said, you know, uh, something happened at the party. There was some inappropriate stuff going on. Um, And this is where the conflict starts, where Gupta's a mandatory reporter. um, So if he hears about something like that, he has to report it to MSU's OEI office. But he doesn't. Um, He has since said that the reason he didn't is because he didn't know the people calling him were talking about something sexual. Um, he like They used the word grinding. He said he didn't know what the word grinding meant. Um, they said like inappropriately dancing. He didn't understand or he didn't know that that meant something sexual. Uh, and then when he's asked, you know, well, you didn't think something sexual occurred because both of those people did report it. He said that they were just kind of playing it safe. So the event was reported. An investigation happened. Had luck has since he left MSU. He's now a professor at Pitt. He's teaching undergrad students. Mm-hmm. Um, but the report... 
uh, did conclude that he was, uh, I guess, guilty in a way of actions he was accused of. Um, yeah, so Gupta fails to report this. Um, and in August, he has a meeting with Teresa Woodruff, who at the time was the provost of Michigan State. Now she's the interim president. Um, and she asks him to, to resign. She says, you know, your actions, they're um, inappropriate. We can't have that. Uh, you need to resign. And this has become a giant conflict at MSU, where Gupta, uh, many of his supporters, especially some very wealthy Broad College donors, have said uh, and pointed out that the, the appropriate punishment for a mandatory reporting failure isn't necessarily um, termination, whereas um, Woodruff and her supporters have argued that you know he was an at-will employee and that it's greater. She actually says in this report and also a letter that we've obtained that she sent to the board in August, it's not necessarily just about mandatory reporting. It's a greater concern. Um, her exact wording, she says she has a zero-tolerance policy for that kind of thing. She has a high administrative standard for deans, and that I think um, her words were she saw a constellation of factors that led her to say that he should no longer be serving as dean. Um, so he's since sued Woodruff uh, and a bunch of other MSU administrators in their personal and professional capacities uh, for defamation, saying that they kind of tarnished his name. Um, many people have called for his reinstatement. People have called for Woodruff to resign over it. Uh, and in August, just days after she asks him to resign, the board um, the board of MSU, who oversees mm -hmm. it, their statewide elected officials, they decided they were going to hire a law firm to look into it and sort of find, you know, uh, the truth of it to look at both parties to just examine it. And they've justified this by part of the board's bylaws say that they have to sort of oversee um, employment decisions to make sure that it's in accordance with university policy and state law and federal law. Um, and yeah, and so this week that investigation was released. Now this is, you know, uh, months after the investigation was ordered, so a lot has been learned and changed since then. Um, but yeah, it was released Saturday or Friday night. So this report, the Quinn Emanuel report, was over 100 pages long. It took around 1,000 build hours to complete, costing the university around $1.6 million. What, in your judgment, were the biggest takeaways from the report? Well, it's not necessarily... Um, I think there was a, an expectation that this report was going to contain you know, some sort of smoking gun or giant new fact that was going to change the whole thing. And I, I don't think that's necessarily what it does if you read it. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, the debate still stands. Woodruff still maintains, um, you know, it wasn't about mandatory reporting. The report confirms the criticism that, like, uh, the punishment was disproportionate with what Gupta did. But it really, it's less about big uh, takeaways, big things that have come out of it and new facts, and more so I think it's just... Uh, confirming and cementing things that are known and being said. It also makes recommendations, mm -hmm. which is it's uh, really, I think, the what the board wanted out of it was recommendations for how we can go forward and how we can change things. Yeah. So d moving into that, so we know the bulk of the report focused on the Gupta case, but Quinn Emanuel also made recommendations on MSU's Title IX policies and reporting approaches. Can you walk us through what exactly the report said on that topic. Yeah, um, and you know, it's important to uh, consider too, they go about that in two ways. Obviously, you know, in going through the invoices, seeing uh, what uh, topics different hours were billed on by the attorneys, what the what the university paid for, and it came mm -hmm. out to about uh, $1.6 million was the total cost of this report. Um, you know, the focus was 90% of the time and money was just on the Gupta case. Mm -hmm. um, another, uh, sorry, let me look. Um, another 4% went to PR consulting for the board, so gotcha. uh, messaging and such. And then 6% did go to a broader look at Title IX and certification issues. Mm -hmm. And so it makes a number of recommendations just about Title IX, but it also 
um, sort of as you go through the Gupta case, it sort of a, treats it as a case study, where at certain points it'll say, this kind of thing happened, this is what we recommend. And so, you know, I've got the recommendations in front of me, and you can read all this in more detail on statenews.com. Um, <laughs> but, um, Gave a little look to the camera there. But yeah. Um, but no, so some of the, a lot of the recommendations just revolve around uh, improving the OEI process altogether. So, um, you know, more staff, more funding, because the timeline, uh, as we learned from reporting from USA Today uh, in fall last year, it takes about 361 days on average for OEI to complete investigation. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of it was just about refining that process. Uh, they recommend more communication between these different agencies. So MSU has the OEI office that investigates these kind of things. There's another office called FASA, which is Faculty and Academic Staff Affairs which is sort of like an HR department for faculty. Mm -hmm. In this particular case, there were matters being handled by FASA about the retirement agreement and the leave agreement that Hadlock had, and there was obviously the investigation into his conduct. Those investigations were going on at different rates, at different points, the communication between them. And so a lot of the recommendations revolve around that, kind of making sure that these processes work in tandem. Um, and that, that's one of the findings, too, was that um, the timing of... Woodruff's meeting with Gupta before either of those had been completed might have been problematic. Um, but yeah, so that's a lot of the more overall investigations. One particular one, uh, or two specific new things that are less sort of overall, but just in the Gupta case. One is that, and this is actually a new piece of information we learned from this report that wasn't previously reported, is that Hadlock was the only non-student at that party by the time it ended. So everyone mm -hmm. else had left. And one of the recommendations they make is that if MSU is going to be having these events, these galas, especially events that involve you know drinking, um, there'd be two mandatory reporters there at any given time. Mm -hmm. Because the way that this happened happened, the students had to say the next day to staff and faculty, "Hey, this is what happened with Hadlock last night." Um, before it reached you know a mandatory reporter in those faculty members. Yeah. Uh, the other specific recommendation, when Hadlock went to Pitt in the fall. Um, Pitt didn't know. They didn't know about his conduct and past conduct. And in fact, they didn't know about it when the report was, when Quinn Emanuel reached out. Uh, you know, it's believed that the only time they knew about it was actually uh, about a month ago when the Pitt News, Pitt student newspaper, reached out to them about it for an article they were writing about Hadlock's conduct in Michigan State. And so it recommends more communication between universities. And, you know, MSU is the only school they're looking at, but it's, uh, I guess, ideally it'd be a broader system where universities communicate about um, people's past infractions. And there's a great, mm -hmm. uh, Chronicle of Higher Education investigation about this called, I think it's called Pass the Harasser, about how that's a problem common in higher education, which is good further reading if you're interested. Yeah, and uh, just to clarify for our listeners, Hadlock is the Broad College of Business uh, faculty member who was involved in the inappropriate conduct yes. at the MBA event. Yes. So uh, kind of our last question, in your coverage of the report, you mentioned there was some pretty significant opposition to the report and participation in it among staff and faculty. Why might that have been? Um, well, and not only was there opposition to the report, but that opposition actually manifested itself in the findings, where sometimes you know the report will say, this is what we found, but it may not be wholly complete, because I think they reached out to 33 people to interview them. Mm -hmm. 22 of those people declined to be interviewed or ignored it altogether. Um, and, and publicly in the fall, so when the board first authorized this, uh, Woodruff at the time as provost and then President Samuel L. Stanley 
publicly opposed it. And I think the reasoning for that on their part was um, Quinn Emanuel was directly reaching out to MSU staff mm -hmm. saying, hey, can we interview, can we talk to you for that report? And they felt like that staff, it should go through some sort of office. Yeah. And also I think it puts staff in an uncomfortable position where it's like you probably want to have an attorney present for that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so they felt like it was moving a little bit too aggressively at MSU. They also said that it was conflicting with a then ongoing investigation into uh, Title IX certification issues, which is done by a Michigan firm Honigman Miller, mm -hmm. um, and that firm, they concluded their report in November, and it found that um, some trustees, uh, Brianna Scott and Renee Kanaki Jefferson, were not doing their um, mandatory duties re reviewing Title IX reports. And so, yeah, there was opposition to this probe by both, um, it seems, staff who were concerned about it, and then that was sort of voiced by, at the time, Provost Woodruff and President Stanley. Mm -hmm. So that kind of wraps this all up, our interview segment for the day. Alex, thanks so much for taking the time to be here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And yeah. um, if you're listening, make sure to listen for, or read the Quinn Emanuel stories. We've got another one coming on Tuesday that'll go in State News and the Pitt News. Oh, exciting. Student a paper, collaboration, so. if you will. Yeah, that'll be, when does this comes out Monday? This so. comes out Monday. This will be uh, tomorrow. Monday. Yeah, so Give when you hear this, it'll be coming out tomorrow. Um, and that's that's our episode of the 1909 for this week. So be sure to tune in every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. And signing off from East Lansing, I'm Lily Gwinney. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>